There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode 321. And today on the show, we're talking gun season. And to do that, I'm first joined by my father to discuss our gun hunting traditions. And then I'm going to be met with Adam Weatherby and Kevin Wilkerson to discuss firearm hunting gear, setting an ethical max range, becoming a better marksman, and much more. And now welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And as I just mentioned, today's episode is all about gun season. You know, many states across the country right about now, give or take, have or will be soon opening their firearm seasons for deer and other species. So for many of us, this time of season is is all about a shift. You know, hunting tactics change, gear choices change, deer behavior changes, and hunting goals change. So, you know, all these changes, all these shifts, that's what I want to talk about today. So first, I'm bringing on my father for our intro conversation. We want to kind of talk about the history, the culture, and the traditions of what gun season and gun hunting means in my family. Now, we're just fresh off of our first gun hunt of the season together, my dad and I, up at our northern Michigan deer camp, Kenroven, as we call that. So we're going to talk about that. Once we wrap that up, then we're going to kick it over to an earlier conversation I had with Adam Weatherby and Kevin Wilkerson from Weatherby Inc. to discuss all sorts of more kind of tactical and gear-related questions around gun hunting. So things like how to pick the right rifle, how to pick the right cartridge, um, how to become a better shooter, how to, I don't know, think about the ethics of gun hunting, and, and a number of different things along those lines. So we kind of cover both sides of gun hunting, the the tangible tactical stuff and then the intangible bigger picture culture side of it which which i hope is going to make for an interesting conversation and one you guys will benefit from so without further ado i say we just get right into it i've got a repeat guest here with me for the introduction mr david kenyon thanks for hopping back on the show hey you're welcome glad to be here (laughs) uh did you have a good time this past weekend pops I had a great 
It was fun. It was fun. And I, I kind of, well, I screwed up. As you know, we already talked about this, but I meant to bring my podcast recording equipment to camp with me so we could do this chat there together, sitting in front of the fire. But I forgot yeah. all that stuff. Um, but what I wanted to do here was, as you know, um, the rest of this pod, podcast conversation with, with my main two guests is going to be about, you know, kind of like the tactical and gear related questions around what it means once firearm season opens up. But for you and me, I know uh, when gun hunting season opens up, it means more than just changing our gear and changing how we're hunting. It also kind of means something different for, I don't know, us like culturally. So that's kind of what I want to talk with you about in addition to just kind of talking about the weekend. But how would you describe our tradition for gun season up north? Um, I don't know. And we've talked about a little bit in the past, but... How would you describe kind of what this past weekend meant for you this year and every year? So there were two holidays in November for our family. Um, Thanksgiving, where we got everybody got together. We had a big turkey dinner and um, celebrated our thankfulness for all that we've been given. And opening day of deer season, <laughs> another big holiday. Yes. And, uh, and I, you know, to your point, um, Grandpa would start talking about the uh, the the you know the opening day of deer season back in June, you know, and, and literally he'd start counting off the months. Only five more months to deer hunting season, Dave. Oh man, it's going to be so exciting to get out there, so on and so forth. <laughs> and uh, so for us, it was it was really a, a, a ritual. It was something we celebrated and getting everybody together and getting the guys together and, and being part of that, uh, that group. Um, and especially, you know, that first morning heading out, uh, for the, for the big hunt was, uh, kind of in our blood. It really was. Yeah. And we talked about this, uh, over the past couple of days, how the opening period of gun season just has a different feeling than the opening of bow season because you and me we started bow hunting when i was i don't know 12 years old or 13 years old so at that point we had these now we had two parts of our season we had bow season and then we had gun season and now today that's still the case a little bit more so for me since i you know i'm bow hunting a ton um but i was telling you how it's it's a very different thing for me now bow season for me is this this go 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 blood, sweat, and tears, hunting like crazy, you know, trying to kill a mature buck, traveling across the country, uh, up early, up late, uh, just a grind, especially during the rut. When it comes to gun season for me, it's a little bit of a shift. Um, it was kind of even the case back when you and I were bow hunting together when we were younger. Um, we bow hunted, we were out there quite a bit, but it was much more of like a solitary activity. Like you and me would go hunt. We were hunting behind the house. Uh, but when gun season came, there was this shift. And it's the same, the same shift we have today, which is it shifts from more of a, a focus on the hunt, a focus on getting out there, kind of solitary, try to kill your deer, to this shift towards the camaraderie and, and all the pomp and circumstance around the hunt that kind of becomes a little bit more important. Would you, do, would you agree is that kind of when gun season opens, it's kind of more about the experience and the people and the place than the actual sitting out there trying to shoot something? Yes, I would say it was both. I mean, it, it was absolutely the former, right? It was getting us all together. We had some of the people in our hunting group we hadn't seen since the previous, you know, rifle season. 
So it was getting everybody together. We talked about it. We had phone calls and, and notes sent back and forth during the year and how excited we were to get together and on all of that. So finally getting together was kind of this culmination of all this anticipation, all this excitement. But, you know, we're all talking about the big gear we're going to get and talking about the sign we've seen. And, you know, and gee, I'm going to go out here and get the big, one of the big rituals, Mark, and I'm sure you remember this, is the night before. We typically would come up either the day before opening day or a couple of days before opening day, whatever we possibly could. And, um, <laughs> you know, certainly not something that you would probably suggest a, a hunter do, but we spent that first day or two going out and scouting, right? Now, we've, we've been up there previous weekends, maybe even a month or two prior and that sort of thing. But, you know, we just, uh, uh, we would go out and kind of check uh, sign again, you know, check the like, trail camps if they were out. Um, try to stay out of the woods as much as possible. But if we if we had that last minute stuff to do, we would. And uh, but it was all excitement about the sign we saw. And boy, I saw a scrape here, and I saw you know a, a rub there, and, and a scrape, and so on and so forth. That was part of the excitement that built up to that. And um, and then usually the night before, uh, we'd usually stay in. Sometimes we'd go up, but usually we'd stay in. We'd make you know somebody would bring up a big pot of chili or or venison stew or chop suey or something. We have a great meal, you know, talk around the table and we'd finish off the night playing poker. Right. But the whole time we're telling stories, we're both telling stories about deer hunting seasons gone past and looking up on the wall with all the antlers and telling stories about each one of them. And, you know, and saying, man, I remember that hunt dad, when you were out and, and that deer came right up on top of you or that one with uncle Steve, where you shot the deer, the big eight point one weekend. And, you know, he came home and you promised, you know, I looked up at you and said, dad, are we going to do the same thing the following weekend? And lo and behold, we did. You know, so that was just all of that, that storytelling and, and the family coming together. And, and, you know, we were, especially my dad, my dad was running all the time. I mean, he had two jobs. He was a director at the gas company and he was a, a you know, a, a senior officer in the army and he never had a lot of free time. So that was the time we spent as a family. And, and, you know, really when we kind of came together and it was okay, just kind of stop and settle down and, and share stories and share time together. Yeah, and that is exactly what it is now. I feel like for you and me, and the yeah, rest right. of the guys that come to camp. Now it's it's that chance to get away from everything else, get up to the cabin, turn off your cell phones, turn off your iPads, mm -hmm. go off the grid, and just be together. And the hunting and the that is that is the excuse to get up there and be yeah. together and to yeah. tell these stories and to eat some good food. Um, but at yeah. least for me now, the most important part of gun hunting season for me, at least here in Michigan is being with you guys and being up there at Ken Roven. And, uh, of course, yes, we'd love to shoot a deer, but I would, if you told me like, here's, okay, here's a situation. If you told me I could only choose one of these outcomes, I could go up to Kenroven, what we call our deer camp. I could go up there next year and I could kill a five-year-old 150-inch buck next year. That's option A. But I'm the only one there. Just me up at Kenroven, but I shoot a 150-inch five-and-a-half-year-old buck. Or option B is that I get to go up there and I don't kill a buck, but I'm there with you and Uncle Steve and Terry and Josh and maybe my son, and we get to spend a week up there and just have the best time telling stories and eating good food and all that. I'm going to take option B every time. That is what I, I it is agree. about. I would agree. 
And frankly, and you've talked about this before on your show, that's kind of the way it's been for the last 10 years. Right? So <laughs> yes. the population just kind of uh, dwindled to the point where we just have not seen a lot of deer up there in the last 10, 15 years. Prior to that, as we've talked about, we saw more deer and we did get a chance to bring in, you know, getting a deer every season or a couple of deer every season was not unheard of. Uh, it's been kind of, you know, kind of slim pickings here the last 5, 10, 15 years. And yet we all still go up there. We all still love being together. We all still go out and, you know, set our stands up and do the scouting and do all the other things. We tell our stories, not because, quite honestly, any of us expects to come home with a 150-inch, you know, mature buck, but because we love being together and we love what Ken Robin represents and we love uh, God's creation and being outdoors. Yeah. It is, uh, it is that, that culture, that tradition, that connection to a place and the people that you share with makes it one of my absolute favorite times of year, every year. And this weekend was a great example of that. I mean, had a blast. I know it was short. We had two, you know, we had two nights, two days, but so nice just to be up there. And, and as you know, that first morning I said, you know what, guys, you guys go out, head out at dawn, go hunt. I'm going to take it a little slow this morning and just kind of soak it in and rejuvenate myself. Cause I've been going nonstop for three weeks, hunting every single day, all day, kind of just going after it during the rut. And I've just kind of warmed myself to a pulp. So Saturday morning, you guys headed out at, you know, before first light and I waited, I drank a cup of coffee and sat in the chair and I just looked up at the wall with all the bucks on the wall and thought through some of those stories that I remember and some of those moments I remember and sat and looked out the front window and imagined what it was like when grandpa and Jerry were sitting in these same chairs, looking out across the lawn and out in that field that used to be a field. Now it's a forest and thought about, you know, the days when I was a little kid up here and imagined how cool it's going to be next year or the year after that, when I bring my son up and I just spent, I don't know, an hour and a half maybe when typically I'd be out hunting. I just spent that first hour and a half sitting there and just kind of taking it in and just I closed my eyes and just took some deep breaths and just tried to like smell it, just smell and think and taste, like just soak it all in. It was, it was so nice. And then I headed out to go hunt and I just slowly walked my way through. I still hunted my way uh, to the north across that public land towards some of our old stomping grounds back when you and I were hunting together. And I just walked, took a couple steps, stopped, glassed, looked around, took a couple steps, took, I don't know, 45 minutes or something, maybe longer, almost an hour, I guess, to get to the location where you and I used to hunt, our old blind. And I'm in the old blind, and now it's all, I don't know if when the last time it is you got out there to that spot, but it's all collapsed. There's hardly anything left. There's just, on one of the trees, There's you can see a couple nails, and there's a little bit of that old carpeting that grandpa used to use as walls for the blinds. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that some of that is on one of these trees and then you can see a couple of the posts that have been cut. So I was just standing there in the midst of what used to be our blind. And I, I remember just touching the nails and rubbing my hands against the old carpet and just like kind of touching that tree and just like physically connecting with this place that we'd spent, you know, so many great times so long ago yeah. And as I'm standing there just kind of thinking about all these things, I hear crunch, 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 literally breaking me out of my little reminiscence. Here come two deer walking right up on me. And it was such a cool moment and kind of like, a, I don't know, one of those weird little things that um, 
just made for a really cool experience out there that brought it all back to why, why we do this stuff in the first place, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, it was interesting when you, that morning, um, when we were talking about where we were going to go and that sort of thing. And you said you were going to, um, you said you're going to head out initially, you said you're going to head South. Right. And, um, uh, or you were going to head North. And I said, no, I want you to go by the food bounce and, and, and hunt South. And I said, well, gee, that's why I work on them all year for you. I want you to get out hunting and I want you to get the big mature deer. And that's when you said, but dad, you don't understand. This is, this is different for me. And you went through what you just talked about. And I kind of, the word I used and the thought I had was it's kind of an intermission for you, you know, um, for us, this is, this is the peak of the season, right? The, the rifle season is, uh, you know, I went out and bow hunted and, and archery hunted a number of times, but rifle season is it. That's the, that's the pinnacle of the season for us. It's your intermission. <laughs> and that's kind of a, that's kind of a, a little bit of an insight for me. Um, and, and yeah, that, that's really, um, pretty cool that you think of the cabin that way and the camaraderie that we have. And I'm very thankful for that. To me, it's the most important, uh, time of the year, not because I'd love to get a big deer. You know, we went through and I think they're probably going to talk about the pictures we saw on the trail cam. Yeah. Man, I got excited about that. That was really cool because we just have not seen that kind of evidence in such a long time to see it finally and see the fruits of our labor and, um, see the benefits of, you know, the, the, uh, management uh, process that's going on in Michigan finally start to come to fruition. That was really exciting. But to be there with you is the single most important part of deer hunting camp for me. Yeah. And, and you're right. It was, um, it was encouraging to see, yes, we checked our trail cameras. We have more, you know, relatively mature bucks on camera more consistently than ever before. I think there's at least three bucks that might be three or older, um, which is a big deal up there. We've never had that. And just the, how often they showed up in the past, we've had some mature bucks show up over the last four years since we started doing some improvements and started running trail cameras, as you know, dead, we've had a mature buck show up, mature buck or two show up most years now, a, a time or two on camera. But this year there's deer that are showing up weekly daily, um, often and in daylight. So that's exciting. Now we didn't see them while we were out there hunting, but I think that's more a product, uh, a product of, we just haven't had a lot of time to spend up there this year. And, and then, you know, tactical stuff, but, um, but it's, it's so encouraging just to know they're up there and that some of the things we're doing are helping some, uh, and it's, you know, as we talked about this spring, I think it, it gives me hope for, the future when we start bringing Everett up and son number two, when he starts coming up and, and Josh's son Wade and, and all that. So yeah. man, it's, it's good to see. You talked about the importance of us getting to hunt together and how we haven't got to do that a whole lot over the years since, you know, as a kid, we got a unique opportunity to do that though earlier in November on the back 40, you came down and hunted on the back 40 for a couple of days um, we yep. haven't talked about that on the podcast. Do you want to give us a quick uh, story of, of what that was like for you? So you, you came down and hunted sure. our new back 40 farm. It was bow season. Yeah. It was November 7th and 8th, I think. Um, yeah. I was super excited to get you out because you've never really been able to hunt a good area during bow season during the peak of the rut. Mm-hmm. So I had these hopes that we were going to see all sorts of activity and you know, you're going to see a big buck and get a chance at your biggest buck ever. Um that was kind of how I thought it was going to go down. 
enter the scene on the night of November 6th, you arrive in camp. Uh, what did you think about it? What what stood out to you from that hunt? Well, <laughs> other than the sausage being made, that was, that was kind of a trip. By that, you mean getting to see how we <laughs> produce the show. Yeah, yeah, that was really fascinating. That was really interesting to see all that goes into what, what you and everybody does and how uh, exciting that is. And, and, you know, it's just kind of neat, especially for me, because, you know, obviously I listen to the podcast, we talk about it all the time, just to kind of get a feeling for what goes on there at camp and, and what goes into everything you guys do was pretty fascinating for me. But, uh, you know, when we went out to the blind um, Thursday morning and then, you know, subsequently Thursday afternoon and then Friday, a, a couple of things, I guess, just, I mean, you know, for me, that I almost choke up when I think about, uh, uh, you know, youth is, is wasted on the young. And if I had known when I was 30 years old, what I know now, and, uh, and you and I talk about this all the time, Mark, you know, that, that time when your son's in that blind with you, um, next year, year after that, whatever, you're going to look back on over the next 40 years as the best times of your life. And, uh, uh, that's the way I felt when you and I were in the blind, even with the cameraman behind us. I mean, I still, I was like, wow, this was really cool. <laughs> Man, I got a chance to do something. And probably, I probably thought I would never be able to do again. And, uh, uh, it was just so cool being there with you and, 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 you know, uh, and kind of, like I said, I mean, it really was fascinating for me to be able to see kind of what, what you go through and what you do and kind of preparation and, and although you and I have hunted before, never quite like that. Um, that was really pretty cool. I really enjoyed it. And, and yeah, I know we didn't see real big deer, but I did get a chance to see several deer and there was a nice, at least for general open standards, um, you know, fairly decent five point. And, uh, it was my choice not to shoot it. I was really tempted. I still wonder whether I should have or not, but, uh, but just being able to scope the deer, watch it as it works through the field, um, you and I chatting and talking about, you know, all that excitement, all the, the, the um, uh, adrenaline rushing through, you know, my veins and, and thinking about that and knowing that if I had pulled the trigger that I would have been there with you to, to shoot and, and find and, and, you know, either when we had that experience together, um, it was a really neat uh, couple of days. So when that, well, we're sitting there together, it's the first evening and it's getting to be towards the last, I don't know, hour, half hour of, of the day, something like that. And we hear this big grunt behind us. Do you remember that? <laughs> um, so there was a, there was a buck behind us. And, and you know what I got to thinking? Yeah. Have you ever heard a buck grunt in the wild before? Because I, I never heard one up at Kenrove my whole life. And I can't remember no. ever hearing one when we hunted behind the house. No. No, the only buck grunt I think I've ever heard is you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's actually really cool. Like I remember yeah. it wasn't until I started like going to other states that I started – you know, hearing buck vocalizations that were real. Um, so that's pretty cool. That you got to hear that. Um, it was, but actually I didn't recognize it. So you said there was a buck grunt and, and I heard it, but I didn't realize that's what it was. That That's how rare that is in my experience to hear. Interesting. Um, so yeah, it, it, it was really exciting to hear that. Yes. And then of course getting ready and, and hoping that he was going to, cause it was behind us, like you said, and hoping he was going to walk around to the last of us and get a good shot and, um, you know, that, that enthusiasm or that anticipation was, was, uh, was great. Yeah. And then that buck comes topping out over the hill in front of us. I'm like, dad, there's a buck, there's a buck coming. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. how, how yeah. you, you handled it like a champ. I couldn't tell you were, you were excited, but were you pretty amped up when that buck was coming in? 
I was, I was because like you said, he came right over the hill and it was a, it was a port, it was a port, um, a portrait picture, right? He was coming right at it. His, his antlers, even though they were only five point, that was a pretty big five point. He looked, he looked like a bigger deer than what he actually was as he got down. And so seeing this deer on top of the hill coming down, I'm getting excited. <laughs> I up the crossbow and, I, and I'm putting on and, and the, the black binoculars first and then the crossbow uh, uh, scope on him next and uh, just watched him come on down. And that's when I was debating back and forth. I mean, I could have shot him as he was coming down the hill. Um, and certainly when he was turning broadside to us, I had a number of times when it was a good shot. Um, and I still, you know, going through my internal debate, should I have shot that deer or not? Um, it would have been venison on the table, right? Yeah. And, uh, uh, we didn't. So, uh, but on the other hand, hopefully that there will be a, uh, uh, a bigger, more mature deer next year. And, and you and I will get a chance maybe with Everett to take another crack of next year. Yeah, that would be cool. It made for a fun evening. That's for sure. Yeah, um, it did. That was a fun experience, and as we said many times, I I wish that it had been a more action packed deer hunt. It just the activity is not like I was hoping, and we got our work cut out for us to try to improve things out there. But yeah. you know, it kind of yeah. comes back to the whole moral of the gun season story, which is you know all of this getting to hunt together up north with the family and friends, getting to hunt with you at the back forty the other day. Uh, it reminds me of the things that are more important than shooting a deer. Um. And that, uh, that's a good thing to get reminded of every once in a while. Yeah, it is. You know, I, I, I think that's right on Mark. You know, for me, I know for you, you were disappointed. I was absolutely thrilled and, uh, um, and they're kind of, you know, they're kind of competing feelings, right? Because I was there with you because I was, I was seeing deer and, and, and being in this situation where there was a good possibility that nice big buck was going to walk in front and I was going to be, I was going to have an opportunity to shoot that deer with you. Um, that meant more to me than anything else. So I had a ball. Well, I'm glad you still had fun that, uh, it was very cool and hopefully we'll have some more chances to do something like that in the future. Um, I got to ask you one more question while I got you because we're going to keep this kind of short. But um, in four days from the time this podcast drops, yeah, three three or four days from when this podcast drops, my brand new book, my first book ever, That Wild Country, An Epic Journey Through the Past, Present, and Future of America's Public Lands, that will be officially released to the world on Sunday, December 1st. You got an early copy of the book and the audiobook before anyone can get yeah. the audiobook. Um yeah. do you have any thoughts you want to share? I didn't coach you on this. I didn't tell you what to say. So no, you, is, didn't. No, you, you are didn't. you no, are you welcome didn't. to say whatever no, you, you want to say. If you hated it, you can tell me. What do you think about okay. the book and is it worth anybody picking it up? Yeah. So admittedly I'm biased, right? But I gotta tell you, so um you know your audience probably knows that I'm visually impaired. Um, so I tend to listen to a lot of audiobooks. I read books as well, but I like to read audiobooks because they allow me to multitask and do different things. And it's just, I own probably 250 audiobooks, um, because I've been a member of, you know, audiobook services for 20 years or so. So I kind of have a good feeling for good narrators and bad narrators. And I typically like books where the author narrates his book, um, so I got your audio book. So I've got the, both the book book and the, and the audio version of it. 
um, and have read the book, uh, portions of the book, but I really wanted to get the audio version and, and listen to that because I just, my experience with, with authors and how that just makes a totally big difference. And it absolutely did. So when I listened to the audio version of it, um, uh, and again, recognize I'm biased, but it, it was the one of the very best narrated audio books I've ever listened to. And, and I think, Mark, because of your, your passion for the topic, first of all, I think that it's just a very well-written book with lots of great information. And some of it's very personal. There's some, very, there's some sections of the book that are very um, almost personally embarrassing to me um, in the sense that they're showing an aspect of, you know, who I am and what we did. And when we went to the Pitchard Rocks trip that, uh, you know, on the other hand, I think it was done in a very loving, uh, respectful way. And you did that throughout the whole book. I mean, it was just uh, uh, really well, a, a really interesting blend of storyte- storytelling and historical interweaving those facts and ideas and thoughts in a, in a, in a manner that was very pro- uh, thought provoking for me. And, going back to the narration. So what, what I have told people is if you possibly can do it, get the audio version of it, whether it's, you know, through one of the services or a CD or whatever, because it, it's, it's a, in my opinion, it's, it's exponentially better than even the great book that it is in print uh, because you hear your, your, um, uh, your passion for public land preservation you hear your, your compassion and, and thoughtfulness around the people who went on these adventures with you. It just all came through in the audiobook. So I'll stop there. I know I'm, I'm <laughs> rambling on. But, but, but yes, you did ask. <laughs> I did ask. And, and, you know, it is kind of self-serving right now. <laughs> if, you, if you gave the wrong answer, then <laughs> it might have been an issue. But, well, then you'd edit it out. <laughs> yeah, you, you've, been, you, you've been embarrassing me, though, in front of, like, other people in public when you start gushing about, like, how your son wrote this book. And I'm always like, Dad don't go over the top with it. I, pr- I really appreciate it, but you know, let's, uh-huh. let's, let's keep it mild, but right now, Hey, go for it. Gush, gush away. <laughs> so, so does it help the fact that I, I bought 15 copies already and buy them 10 copies because I'm giving away to everybody I know for Christmas. <laughs> That's, that is absurd, but thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. At least I'm going to no, sell, quite honestly, at least I'm going to sell 25 the bucks. I started out yeah, at least you told so twenty five. Yeah, but but the reason I started out with the with G, I've listened to two hundred fifty books over the course of twenty years. Blah blah blah, is because I think that gives me some credibility in terms of knowing good narrators and people who can really tell a story from people who just blandly go through and tell their story. You know, and you did a phenomenal job. I, I quite honestly, it's the best audiobook I've ever listened to. Well. <laughs> Thank you for saying that, even though it might be biased. I do appreciate it. I'm glad you're liking it. I'm glad that you liked the chapters that were written about our trip together. Um, yeah. And I haven't talked yeah. about the book too much on the podcast yet, and I'm going to talk about it more in some future episodes in detail. But uh, I do want to give you guys just a heads up a little bit more about what is in store within this book. It is the story of the history of our public lands across the country and what's happening to them right now and what we might need to be thinking about in the future to keep them around. And I share all that information um, through the series of through a series of my own public land adventures. So things that you, if you've listened to this podcast for a while, uh, you know that I care about public lands. You know that I've been following this current controversy around them that's been taking place over the last five years or so. And you know that I've spent a lot of time 
out there doing these things, seeing these these wilderness areas and national parks and national forests and whatnot. So I tried to weave my own story of trying to learn about these places. I tried to weave that through a series of trips within those places. So I went backpacking in Yellowstone National Park with my wife. I went shed hunting with Furter in western North Dakota, and we explored Theodore Roosevelt National Park. I went uh, pack rafting and fly fishing in the Bob Marshall Wilderness of Montana with my buddy Andy Bradley, who was on that Boundary Waters hunt with me recently. Uh, we went and I did some camping and hiking with my wife. I caribou hunted in Alaska, um, went on a bear hunt with Randy Newberg in Montana, a whole series of different things like that. And then the backpacking trip I took with you and uh, my sister in Pictured Rocks. All those personal experiences I hoped would flesh out and engage people as we learned about these places along the way. So that's what the book's about. I poured my heart and soul into it. Um, like I mentioned, we'll talk a lot more about it over the next couple of weeks as the book is released here. Um, but it would, and I don't do this often. I don't know if I've ever done this really ever on the podcast before. I'm going to do it a couple times this month. Um, I have poured myself into this podcast and this audience over the last 10 years with Wired to Hunt and the last uh, five years with the Wired to Hunt podcast. I hope I've given you guys a lot of value. I hope I've been able to entertain you and inform you and inspire you. And that is what I have tried to do now with this book. If, if anything I've done has helped you along the way or inspired you or helped you shoot a deer or whatever it might be. If you've ever thought to yourself, I would love to give Mark a high five or a, ha- or a handshake or support him in some way. This is the best way you could ever support me. Please purchase a copy of That Wild Country. It would mean the world to me. This is a dream come true to have been able to write this book. And uh, I really am hoping I get a chance to write some more. And you buying a copy of this book or the audiobook or buying one for a friend or a family member, that would help that... Uh, possible. So that's my plug for that wild country this week. I'll give you a couple more as we lead into Christmas, but um, thank you everyone for considering the book and thank you dad for so shamelessly plugging the hell out of it. (laughs) Hey, if you can't plug your son's book, whose book can you plug? Yeah, I guess that's right. I guess that's right. And thanks dad for, for coming on here and helping me introduce this episode. It's, I'm glad we could talk about this because because this is that there's there's two parts to gun hunting for me. One is how to do it and the gear to do it, and the other parts about the people and the memories and the places. And uh, I couldn't think of anyone better to talk about that part with than you. So thanks for joining me. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time: Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more.
This episode is brought to you in part by O'Reilly Auto Parts, who are in the business of keeping your car on the road and also keeping you happy. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. I use the O'Reilly by me. It's right in downtown where I live. And the team there is super knowledgeable. When you got questions, they're happy to help you out. It's a great store to go into. The team at O'Reilly Auto Parts, they can test your battery for free in or out of your car. And don't ignore your check engine light. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today, a free diagnostic service exclusively at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Need your windshield wipers replaced? Brake light fixed? Quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop to get some help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in the store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'Reilly Auto, O-R-E-I-L-L-Y, O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. All right, here with me now on the line is Adam Weatherby and Kevin Wilkerson. How are you guys? Good. Yeah, doing well. So, Thanks for having us on. Hey, it's it's my pleasure. I appreciate you getting up bright and early, starting the day straight off of the podcast. I hope you got some coffee at least. <laughs> I know this isn't the best way I to do. start the day maybe. Uh, I'm on my second Yeti full, so I'm good. <laughs> good. I'm a little weird. I don't drink coffee, which always throws people off, but it's just because I never have, so... Nothing it's actually easy when when we go hunting. Kevin doesn't eat breakfast and he doesn't drink coffee, so I'm up usually a half hour before him in the tent or wherever trying to get going. He just rolls out, puts on his boots, and starts hiking. <laughs> How do you function? That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know actually. Well, about nine thirty, he usually gets really hangry. Yeah, I get real angry around nine thirty. I eat a little breakfast bar and then I just keep going. But it was funny at first. The first couple of our adventures, I, I could tell Adam was a little worried about me because. He was like, you know, getting ready and getting coffee. And, you know, I was just kind of like sitting there. And I think he thought that I was just lazy. Lazy. I thought you were lazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm ready to go. <laughs> That's uh, great. Well, uh, before we go too far, I guess, I introduced the audience to you really briefly myself, but I'd love to hear from you yourselves. Just a little bit of a Cliff Notes intro to, to your story for each of you. I don't know. Uh, maybe, Adam, do you want to lead us off there? Sure. Sounds good. Yeah. I'm uh, Adam Weatherby, um, CEO of Weatherby Inc., company my grandpa started back in 1945 in Southern California. So I'm the third generation uh, leader of this firearms business, rifle, shotguns, and ammunition, passionate outdoorsman and hunter, father of two, husband to a pretty hot wife that runs this company with me. And uh, so I get, yeah, the opportunity to what we believe is make the world's finest firearms. I get to carry that on being an American family owned business. Moved our company out here to Sheridan, Wyoming uh, this past year, uh, which has been a huge move. Built a new facility. So we're just south of you guys uh, here across the border into northern Wyoming and uh, absolutely loving it. That's that's a pretty incredible story from everything I've heard about that move. Um, yeah. What, what about you, Kevin? I, want, I do want to dive back into a little bit more about the story of Weatherby, but, but Kevin, let's hear yours yeah. first, too. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how I'm going to follow up Adam here, but uh, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm Kevin Wilkerson. <laughs> uh, I get to hang out here and hunt with Adam. No, I, uh, uh, 
I, um, I moved out here when, when Weatherby decided to move from California to Wyoming. Uh, I've, I've been a hunter my whole life and uh, actually primarily grew up uh, hunting over in Tennessee and Arkansas and uh, Indiana and Kentucky for whitetails and um, started as I, as I got into my college years wanting to come out west and started doing that. And then when Weatherby decided to move out to Wyoming, uh, it looked like a perfect opportunity. I, I've worked um, for almost a decade now, I think, in the outdoor industry and um, – all mainly in hunting, hunting brands. And so this just seemed like a great fit for me. And, uh, I'm, I'm happy to be at, at Weatherby. I think there's a, a lot going on here that people can, can get behind. And I also, uh, you know, love working for the Weatherby family, uh, Adam and Brenda, you couldn't ask for better people to work for. And, uh, we have a great time out in here in Wyoming so far. So, um, it's really not as cool as Adam's story, but that is my story. So uh, me and my wife moved out here. I, I have a wife, and uh, we have a dog, no kids, and, uh, uh, you know, just kind of grew up hunting whitetails out out east. So, Well, I got to believe your story there of moving out to Wyoming, having that having that dream, living in the Midwest or the South, and then eventually wanting to move out there. That's something that a lot of people can relate to, um, and, and that's something – I got to believe has helped and maybe not, but I'm, I'm curious, Adam, if that has helped you guys at Weatherby moving to Wyoming um, because that Rocky Mountain interior West has such a draw for so many outdoorsmen and women. What was that like? What's what did that move mean for you guys? Why did you guys decide to shift from California to Wyoming? Uh, what's that mean for you guys as a company and a brand? Yeah, no, it's it's huge. I think, you know, ultimately it represents our future. I think I, I often have said here this past year that California represents a rich history and heritage. My grandfather and my father running it, a lot of great people working for him over the years. Wyoming really represents a bright future for Weatherby. Um, you know, we have, um, you know, about 80% of our workforce is new here in the past year, year and a half. So it's it's a pretty incredible new beginnings. But like you said, I mean, we're right here at the foot of the Bighorn Mountains. You know, I I tagged a antelope, a muley, an elk, you know, all, well, mountain lion, all right here in Wyoming this year. Um, our employees are out outdoors all the time. So I think it's, it's authentically, you know, who we are. We've been, we're a hunting rifle. We sell a, a ton of guns to you know, places east of here and south of here. And so a lot of folks, uh, even like Kevin, that grew up uh, maybe either wanting to come west or started to, but, um, you know, we, so, so we're a national company, but, but our heart has always been and kind of just even our location, who we are has been in the west. And so obviously a move to Wyoming's huge. It was a business move as well. I mean, from uh, taxes and regulations, cost of living, um, political climate, everything in California that kind of shoot us out of there. And I, you know, kind of often said we, we kind of ran as far away from California as we could, and we ended up in Sheridan, Wyoming, <laughs> at the far other end of the spectrum. It's been, it's been very, very good for us. Um, I mean, it's it's been a ton of work. Not gonna lie, mm-hmm. um, we got a great team, um, some sweet new things we're working on, a great new facility, uh, some great new partnerships, like with you folks. So it's it's uh, it's an exciting time for Weatherby for sure, and the the move really was a catalyst for a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like you've been awful busy with all those tags you filled this year in Wyoming. Um, but I, <laughs> I have started heading out West to, I've, I've done a lot of the big game as well, but I've also been tinkering with whitetail hunting out there. I've hunted in, 
oh, Montana, North Dakota, Nebraska, some of those western states, and found there's some pretty damn good whitetails out there. Uh, what's the Wyoming story? Can you give me like a whitetail scouting report? I'll keep this one off air. This oh, is geez. just this is just for me. I want the intel. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh yeah, you can keep it on air because there's not enough people out here shooting whitetails. Really? Yeah. I mean the the weird thing about Wyoming is well not weird but when you buy a deer tag, obviously you have to, if you want to hunt a good, a, a draw unit, you're going to have to put in points or you're going to have to get lucky and get a random draw um, as a non-resident. But it's an either sex tag. It's not an either sex tag. It's an either mule deer or whitetail tag when you get your tag. So for the most part, people coming out to Wyoming, especially from out east, are more than likely looking for a mule deer. But the whitetails don't really... Uh, get a lot of attention. It's actually, it's actually a funny little thing because, you know, me coming from out east, you would pass fields, uh, you know, Arkansas, Tennessee, Kentucky, whatever. Uh, you know, you'd see like twenty deer in a field. You'd be like, oh man, look at those deer. Mm-hmm. You know, eighty deer. Oh wow, that's a lot of deer. Around here, you pass a field and you'll see hundreds and hundreds of whitetails, and you're like, whoa. That's different. They are very heavy private land, uh, the whitetails, as compared to, you know, your mule deer and elk and a lot of other things you can find on public. It's it's definitely yeah. a lot harder because they are, you know, in the in the hay fields and irrigated areas and those different things. Like I live, I, I live out on a little bit of acreage, and I have mule deer on my property property exclusively. Uh, once in a great while, a whitetail wander up. I am probably at most a half mile from our creek to which all those properties have whitetail. Huh. And and I might see two whitetail a year. Well, I've lived here for a year and a half. I'm talking like I'm a local expert, but in the last <laughs> yeah. year, that rarely come up. And so you have this kind of weird mix of you'll drive by if you're driving and you're driving by the creek beds and golly, there's a bunch of whitetail in people's fields. And then you kind of come up and maybe there's a little state chunk of land on the right and there's a bunch of mule deer antelope and so it's really kind of a, a weird thing that people till they're kind of here can't can't really figure out i mean they're not monsters in relation to a lot yeah. of things you're probably used to yeah uh, you know east of here for sure but yeah at least from my experience and i don't know if it's the same in wyoming but i'm, I'm guessing it might be you kind of alluded to it it's the fact that a lot of people in the West seem to ignore the whitetails. They just aren't quite as sexy as the elk and the mule deer and everything else you can chase. So they're a little bit under the radar for at least local people. So when someone like me heads out there, while while there are some big deer in the Midwest, of course, coming from Michigan, it's a little bit different here. We don't get to see a lot of old deer. So when I came out to Montana or North Dakota, the number of mature bucks you see is just so astronomically higher than I'm used to back home. That was just a blast. I mean, you're not maybe, I mean, they're mm-hmm. not maybe boon and crack of bucks, but I love just seeing it. Yeah. You see a four year old in Michigan once a year. That's a great oh, year. Yeah. You see four oh, yeah. in a night, some spots of hunted Montana. <laughs> oh, for sure. No, no, there's, they'll, they'll be around, especially if you're looking for mature deer. It's just that it, it you know, and, I, and there's going to be a lot of people that probably disagree. There's big deer here. Um, but generally speaking, in my opinion, consistently big deer whitetail wise in this specific area is generally on going to be on private land. Yeah. But you, I mean, I know a lot of people that shoot big, big deer, um, in a couple little pockets of public land here and there, because they're just kind of when they're there, they're there. But what happens too, is some guys don't want to use their tag on whitetail. It depends. So some guys like depends on the zone kind of where I hunt locally around here, you know, my mule deer, 
uh, is just the last two weeks of October. You know, it goes through the end of October, and basically you can kind of just hold out for a good muley, and if you don't end up shooting that muley, you just, November 1st, you kind of transition to whitetail. Yeah. Um, like myself, my wife, my daughter all got a muley. My son, uh, he's playing football, which shout out Sheridan just won the state championship football game, by the way, uh, nice. but, uh, yeah, like anybody cares, but we're pretty excited. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm taking him out Saturday and we're going to go try to try to find a whitetail buck on some public land and walk around for a little bit. So, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of fun that you have that either or type of thing. If you see some, see a mule deer that tickles your fancy and that's awesome. And if not, the whitetail season goes, you know, quite a bit further here in this area anyways. Most of them go through November 30th. Um, so it really kind of extends that time for, for rifle. Yeah. So speaking of that shift, you talked about how a lot of people are shifting locally where you're at to thinking, okay, now it's time to try to get a deer, get a whitetail if we have to fill that tag with a gun. There's there's a similar shift happening in a lot of other parts of the country, kind of around where I'm at, where our bow seasons are ending and our rifle seasons or firearm seasons are beginning. Um, so that's happening for me personally. I'm heading up to my northern Michigan deer camp tomorrow for the first time of the year for my rifle hunt. Um, a lot of other folks are doing the same across all sorts of parts of the country. So with that being the case, um, what I kind of want to talk about is is that shift. In, in first, how that shifts in your mind. Would you guys go... And, and head out there for a firearm hunt. I, I know, Kevin, you used to work in the archery industry, so I'm sure you have been a part of this too, right? You're bow hunt, bow hunt, bow hunt, and then all of a sudden you make that shift and you pick up the gun. A flip is switched in your mind and in your tactics and in your gear and your setups. Uh, what comes to mind for you guys first off when you head out on that first hunt with a different type of weapon, when you're shifting to deer hunting now with a firearm? How does that change your mindset? Well... For me specifically, even if it was where I grew up or even out here, generally when I'm hunting with the bow, obviously I'm wanting to get closer. So a lot of the time, if I've not filled my tag or if I have multiple tags for that specific animal in that state, at that point, I'll kind of know it, it makes it a little bit easier when you pick up that rifle because you're having to get so close, you know, uh, for instance, uh, mule deer this year out here, I know we're kind of talking about out east, but just the experience, I, I was having to really get within 60, 70 yards of a mule deer and I didn't make it happen. But when rifle season started, I was like, well, I know where I'm going to be. Like you knew where you were going to be with the rifle mm -hmm. on a bipod, looking at a specific area, you know, either that, or you have the opportunity if you have multiple tags to, to set up on a different animal. Um, and, and try to fill that second buck tag or, for, you know, if you're in that area that you have multiple buck tags. But, you know, really I think the biggest shift is the area that you're hunting. Um, when I pick up a rifle, I generally don't try to – I generally try not to go into that, that thick timber, um, whether it be for whitetails or for um, or for mule deer or anything like that. I, I, I like to make sure I can see things um, because that rifle is going to allow me to get out there and – and put a good shot on an animal. Yeah. Also, the I mean, obviously you got weather moving stuff around. So out here, I mean, we're at four thousand feet, but if you could drop a pin, get to Blacktooth or Cloud Peak, that's at thirteen thousand feet, and that's twenty five miles from here. So, and we're at four thousand. So, I mean, you know, we're right at the base of the mountains. Uh, so, I mean, Kevin, you were up as high as ten thousand feet hunting for elk uh, oh, with, yeah. with your bow. I was as down as low as 5,000 feet 
you know, hunting for elk here during rifle. Um, so obviously, yeah. you know, that weather just, you know, weather pushes things around. So there's a lot of considerations, you know, there as well, especially, especially when you're out here with the different elevations, things are just really starting to starting to move around as soon as uh, rifle season starts. Yeah. Speaking of that weather influence, one of the things that as a bow hunter, we always have to obsess about is wind and wind direction. What's the wind doing? How is that going to affect how we can set up for a shot at a deer within 20 yards or 40 yards or whatever it is? It's it's so crucial to everything you do. How do you guys think about wind differently at all when you're out there with your with your rifle? Do you disregard it completely? Do you still think about it? Or are you saying, hey, you know what? It's just as important now as when I was out there with archery equipment. I think it's just as important. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean well, obviously you have wind as far as uh, you're not getting sniffed out by the animal. Yeah. And then really you have then wind to consider as far as bullet drift, especially out here in Wyoming, it can get a little breezy, yeah. uh, but it, uh, it, uh, you know, in, in, I guess it's a little shout out to our cartridges and different things like that, that the faster moving bullet you have, depending on your ballistic coefficient, different things of the actual bullet you're shooting. I think people overthink wind when it comes to bullet drift uh, it really starts to play in at, at much longer distances where 90% of people probably are not hunting. And so, uh, you know, with a lot of the kind of, especially the faster cartridges we have, the, the wind really isn't as much of a factor. It's one of the, you know, the great reasons about getting a bullet moving fast is, is A, you don't have as much drop, and B, it's in the air for less time, therefore, you know, wind being less of an effect, you know, on it. I think people can overthink wind, certainly, when it, when it comes to bullet drift. So what is that range, then, wherein you do need to worry about it? Depends on the cartridge and depends on the bullet. Yeah, I mean, question. for instance, you know, there's six five Creedmoor super popular, right? So maybe with the one forty grain, that thing's moving at twenty six, twenty seven hundred feet per second. We have a six five three hundred Weatherby, that thing's moving more at thirty four hundred, thirty three hundred feet per second. And so between just those two, again, you're going to start uh, thinking about it more. Uh, really, anything within three hundred yards is where a lot of people shoot. I mean, wind is very rarely an, an actual factor, um, especially when you have a fast-moving cartridge. You know, when you get beyond 500, your wind starts to really, you know, obviously make a, a bigger difference. And then every 50 to 100 yards after that, I mean, it. Adds, I mean, difference between shooting at 400 and 550 yards is the world. You know, people don't kind of get where those those things are. And so, obviously, with technology out there now, it's it's helped quite a bit. You know, you have your Kestrel units, different things, but I mean, trajectory is just science as far as bullet drop. That's just pure physics. Just so math. you can dial up that dope and you can have it on a card. You can these days have it on your scope or your rangefinder. You can have it on your phone. Wind, especially when you're shooting Cross Canyon out here and different things, it's a, yeah. it's a pretty big factor. You bring terrain into the equation and then all of a sudden you're shooting over a, a little canyon or a little drop in a in a hillside and the wind's doing something totally different in that, in that bottom than it is. So when guys say like how far out, you know, will you shoot with an animal wind is, is that number one, my position, you know, if I can be prone and you know, whatever, it's going to help me shoot out further. But then obviously that, that wind is going to be, I I don't like messing with it. Uh, You know, once it's out that far, a lot of guys do and they just try to bucket and everything, but it's, it's mother nature, man. It's a hard thing to predict. Yeah. So this, this, is something that's definitely on my mind right now. And I, I, we might as well just dive into it at this point, given where we're going. There is so much talk and interest 
especially out west around long range shooting shooting at long distances and you've got these wide open expanses to do that um, that typically hasn't been as much of a thing back east or in the midwest north south uh, it's typically more of a short range game sometimes by law because you're only allowed to use a shotgun or a straight wall cartridge sometimes it's simply because of the terrain and the viewpoints and all that uh, that said with so much media coming out of the West now and guys living in Michigan, seeing someone in Wyoming shooting 600 yards, there's more and more people experimenting with that and wondering about that and thinking maybe I should try to shoot at a deer across a cornfield 500 yards away or whatever it might be. What can you guys tell us about and, and, and assume this is to an audience that does not know what they're talking about when it comes to shooting rifles long range, because uh, me, I'm the, I'm the audience and I don't know. I don't do that kind of thing. <laughs> so how do we go about determining the right maximum range for you and your weapon? What are the things I should be thinking about? How do I test that? How do I make sure I'm, I'm making a smart ethical decision uh, with that type of issue? Yeah, no, lots of things going through my head. I, I think, uh, you know, I can start it off here and Kevin, you can yeah, talk about because We, we yeah. talk about this quite a bit because we make rifles with that shoot bullets really fast. And so it it gives people a lot of confidence, but there's a lot of people out there that maybe shouldn't be shooting at the distances that they are. Um, the, you know, first off, if you, uh, well, first off, if you can go shoot on a bench rest, that doesn't mean you can shoot in the field at that same distance. So, so rule number one for me would be, have you hit that distance consistently in the same conditions from the same position. So if I can go down and I have a bench rest, sandbags, a lead sled, whatever, you know, I'm putting my things up and I can shoot at 700 yards consistently at a eight inch plate, let's say, or 10 inch plate. That doesn't mean I can do that in the field. And so it's becoming, you know, in other words, I have, I'll shoot longer prone, especially if I can even get uh, you know, while I'm laying down on my bipod, if I can get my pack or my bino pack even kind of tucked up under the rear, I can get bench rest solid from a prone position. If I'm sitting down, say with sticks or resting it on a fence, it's going to be a shorter distance. If I'm standing, I shot a mule deer buck this year and I had to stand slash crouch through some trees uh, and, I, and I had some sticks I could put up high, but obviously my range is less. So I think understanding the difference in that, and, and I, I would really challenge and encourage people, depending on what type of range or land you can go out to shoot from, is don't just go down and, and shoot from a bench. Shoot in the positions you're going to be shooting in because it makes all the difference. A lot of guys, if they haven't shot prone a lot, you'll sit down, your head will get up on that scope a little bit, and people will, will overshoot animals uh, because they haven't really practiced from those positions. So I think that that's, that's an important consideration. And so when you talk about where you should shoot, if let's say I know from my prone position, I have a piece of steel out there that's the size of the vitals of the animal I'm going to shoot, and I can consistently hit that again and again, then yeah, I'm comfortable to go out and shoot an animal at that distance. But it's really got to be apples to apples from the way that you practice from the way that you go out in the field and then also understanding wind too. So if I can shoot prone at 500 yards and I'm real comfortable in hitting vitals and blah, 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 but I get out there in the field and it's a gusty day and it's 25 miles an hour, your things change. So you need to understand those elements that, that come into to play as well. Um, and then maybe lastly, and then I'll, I can stop. I can talk about this all day, but, <laughs> but is also <laughs> understanding your bullet, 
um, your cartridge and the energy yeah. that it carries through at different yardages. Yeah, okay, that's what I was going to say. And so it's important to know if you're shooting a 6.5 Creedmoor, you can shoot it accurately and maybe hit steel with no wind and shoot that at 800 yards. But a 6.5 Creedmoor energy-wise at 800 yards um, – isn't going to have a, a lot of foot pounds of energy to take down an animal like an elk at that distance. And so depending on the cartridge, like my daughter shoots a six, five Creed more a lot. She's younger, but I'm going to have that range be not necessarily because she can't hit it, but it's like, man, at that point, especially if you're shooting an elk or larger animal, like you better hit those vitals, you know, where you have a little more room for air when you have a, a larger cartridge that delivers more foot pounds of energy as well. So it's also understanding that. What, what yeah. would you add, Kevin? Uh, I think the foot pounds of energy would be my, my main thing is when you run, you know, and I guess like you're saying, starting from, from the base level here, when you get muzzle velocities either off of a box of ammunition, which a manufacturer will put on that box, um, saying this is what this is how fast that cartridge, that this bullet is coming out of that barrel with a specific cartridge. When you get that, like for Weatherby, Weatherby rounds, for instance, we have a velocity, energy, and inches of variation uh, of drop. Uh, every 100 yards to 500 yards, yards on the side of the box. to 500 yards. Mm-hmm. If you look at some, you know, just general studies, you'll start to look and see about what people, general opinions, think a bullet needs foot-pounds of energy-wise to take down an animal of different sized proportions. If you don't have a box that has that, you could go to any general ballistic calculator online and type in a couple key things – which would be ballistic coefficient, also called BC, muzzle velocity, uh, size of the bullet. And generally it will spit out what that's going to be at distances. And you can kind of decide if that's foot pounds of energy that you're comfortable with. I think that that's an important factor, but I really, for me, cause I'm, you know, generally we're, we're kind of lucky cause we're kind of comfortable with everything. Like our, our guns and our cartridges, we, we kind of do this every day. So we know like, oh, I'd shoot this at this distance and this is it. But I think my number one thing when you're talking about me being in the field is that I just respect animals. And I don't want to, I don't want to A, compromise a hunt or B, compromise an animal because of me wanting to shoot it at a further distance just because I could put a bullet right. in it. I don't and, shoot and I, it. And I just one thing that I'm really adamant about, and I think a lot of us here are, um, you know, like if it's 800 yards away and you're like, oh man, it's the last day of the hunt, but I don't have a gun to shoot it. I'm just not going to squeeze it. I just, I think that we have a responsibility. I do to, to be smart with how we're hunting and to have a respect for the game that we get the opportunity to hunt. And I think sometimes when you're talking about long range stuff, people want to see how far they can scoop back to shoot that animal. I just think sometimes that might not be the best option. Yeah. So I just say, from a personal perspective, really think about that from how we have the opportunity to hunt and the, the animals that we do get to hunt and how, how awesome that is. I, I just have a great respect for the animals that we get, that we get a chance to go after. And I don't, I don't want to compromise them. Yeah. Worst feeling in the world is, is shooting a deer and, and not finding it. Um, and I think a lot of people have been in that situation. So yeah, you can never get that ball back. The, right. Yeah, it's exactly knowing the right. size of your animal too. So you're out here and I mean, you know, an elk's vitals is a little larger than a, than a pronghorn. And so, you know, it's also understanding that, that size of your target. And I think people that haven't hunted maybe out 
out in the, the Western, more mountainous regions to understand, like even a lot of times with mule deer or elk, certainly there's, there is a lot of cross Canyon stuff. And I've, I've shot a, a few elk in the last few years in the 500 ish range and uh, yardage. And, and yet what happened is there's a Canyon in between. I closed the gap as much as I could. And, you know, sometimes it's, uh, you know, the likelihood of being able to get closer is just a hard thing to do. And until you've hunted in this terrain, that's maybe a hard, harder thing to understand till you kind of been here. And sometimes you're, you're sitting there glass and you're like, yeah, well, there's a big old gorge or drainage or Creek below me. And then it shoots up on the other side. And like, it's a hard thing to, to go there. And depending on how the wind is, um, you know, it's, it's sometimes so, so being able to have that ability, certainly, you know, the more you can get confident, where you feel you can consistently hit that target, um, it does up your odds of being able to tag your animal and, and make a make a great shot. I mean, my best, probably my best elk kill shot was at 525 yards. Um, not that they've all been great, but the best single one I had, it was a hard shot. It was there. There was no wind, you know. Um, I understood my scope and, and, and made a clean shot, but I've had bad shot. I've had bad shots at 200 yards as we all have had. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, understanding that proficiency, but I guess I'll, I'll kind of close it and push it back to you for sure. But is, uh, you know, optics does play a big part Mm. in it as well is, um, there's so many different ways to dial in your scope. Are you going to have a holdover or are you going to have maybe an app on your phone and you dial it in and then you have, you actually dial your scope, you know, with a zero stop type of scope. And so there are, understanding the different methods of how you're going to do that when you're shooting out further. The bottom line is you're either going to need to hold over, you're going to need to dial something and, uh, and you're going to kind of need to, to figure that out and, and be, be comfortable with it. And an error in that category there of not understanding the way your optics work can mean a miss or a, a, you know, an injured animal that gets away. So it is important to, uh, to understand that as well. Yeah. You know, actually, great example of this i was i was mule deer hunting this past weekend in nebraska and um i had brought a firearm with me that a a friend of ours was using uh for some for some stuff we were doing here at weatherby and and i i uh we had a scope that had it was it was actually a a vortex lightweight hunter and it had moa drops under it to 16 in and it goes by two, four, six, eight. and i i told them where that holdover was at three because we wanted to verify rifles and he was just a little bit unsure about what the two, four, six, eight meant. And we were a little, he was hard. He thought they were the dashes and not like, it just depends on how that scope is set up. If we were going to dial it or if we were going to use the hashes for the holdover. Anyways, we took like four shots and they were all really high. And he was like, are you sure this thing is sighted in? I was like, I'm pretty sure this thing is sighted in. And I was like, do you mind if I shoot it? And he was like, no, that's fine. So I got behind it and we hit the piece of steel and he was like, what was I doing wrong? And I was like, you were holding on the six, not the huh. two. <laughs> but it's just, you know, exactly what Adam said. You know, especially you just got to know that scope. You got to know what minute of angle means, or you got to know what mill means, mm-hmm. depending on which scope you're using, um, and what those adjustments mean at distances, not only at 100 yards being a quarter click, but also what that translates to at 300 yards being a click. And it so, also means you have to have your, your rifle really dialed in because – so if you're two inches right at a hundred yards, well, who who cares at a hundred yards? But if five hundred yards, you're now ten inches. Yeah, you know, off. and at seven, you're fourteen, and so uh, 
it's really making sure that you're you're very dialed in um, and that your rifle's accurate. Because so if your rifle shoots a two inch group, who cares at a hundred yards? Uh, well, at six hundred yards, you know that could mean either missing your animal or your vitals yeah, uh, for sure. So there are a lot of factors. I hope I don't know if we answered your question, but obviously we can talk about this all day. <laughs> no, you, you you'd certainly. Yeah. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time: Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you in part by O'Reilly Auto Parts who are in the business of keeping your car on the road and also keeping you happy. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. I use the O'Reilly by me. It's right in downtown where I live. And the team there is super knowledgeable. When you got questions, they're happy to help you out. It's a great store to go into. The team at O'Reilly Auto Parts, they can test your battery for free in or out of your car. And don't ignore your check engine light. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today, a free diagnostic service exclusively at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Need your windshield wipers replaced? Brake light fixed? Quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop to get some help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in the store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'Reilly Auto, O-R-E-I-L-L-Y, O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Did. And I feel like we need to rewind the tape just a little bit and start a little bit earlier in the process, though, because you were talking about choosing the right cartridge that has the right feet per second, that has the right energy. And that's something that I do think, uh, and I'm speaking a little bit from my own experience here and from my own circle of friends and family, um, but oftentimes you shoot the gun your, gra- your grandpa gave you or you shoot the, the gun you picked up that one time and if everyone that you hang out with shoots a 308, you shoot a 308 um, because you're out there and you get a 150-yard shot for a week a year. And um, we typically, there aren't as many people that are getting as serious about really dialing in their firearms and really knowing them here as they maybe might be in Wyoming or Montana where, th- where that's just so much more of a possibility to take those types of shots. So my question yeah. then is, let's start at the beginning, which is then making sure you're choosing the right cartridge for your scenario. Um, how do you guys go about making that decision when it comes to picking the right cartridge for a whitetail hunt versus then if you want to go out west and chase a bigger game like mule deer or elk or moose or something like that? Can you kind of walk us through the the thought process, the, the questions you should be thinking about, um, and then maybe some specific recommendations too. Great question. And again, that's, that's what it's we do. It's a deep do. question. Yeah, that's it's a, a deep question. It is. I think 
you know, we talked about it earlier. People think about speed, but an important thing to think about is energy. It's measured in foot pounds. And so usually when you look at a ballistics chart on a, you can Google it on that particular cartridge, uh, you know, that, that, uh, foot pounds of energy is what is important. And so as you're shooting out further, the faster your bullet is moving, it's obviously going to be that speed and that weight <laughs> combined, right? That's going to carry that. So your bullet weight is going to be, uh, an important factor. In other words, um, let's say, you know, let's say a, a 257 Weatherby, okay? Maybe you're shooting a 100-grain bullet. That's a 25-caliber bullet. It's lighter. 110-grain bullet. Yeah, let's just say 110 that. AccuBond or something sure. out of the 257. Thing's going to shoot flat and far. Um, it's it's going to be awesome for most all your deer, your whitetail, your mule deer. But then I, I personally, lots of people do, I wouldn't choose to use that on a, a moose or elk, because I just would want more mass in that bullet, right? And so, uh, you know, there's the mass of the bullet, but then there's the speed to consider uh, as well. And so people try to find, you know, a, a kind of middle-of-the-road cartridge, which you could do certainly to try to shoot North American big game. I mean, our 300 Weatherby Magnum is our best-selling cartridge for 70 years or whatever because you can maybe load it in a 165 grain all the way up to a 200 and 20 grain really, uh, that you could put in there, you know, it's, it's fast, it's, it's flat, all those different things. So you're really looking at your speed. You're looking at that foot pounds of energy. So your mass of your bullet is going to be in there. Some people are going to consider recoil. However, I would say that with the technology of muzzle brakes with our muzzle brake, I mean, my daughter who's 16, I could put her behind a 300 Weatherby mag with a muzzle brake. Yeah, no problem. Or if you can hunt with the suppressor, which obviously is a little more complicated, it's no problem. I think people do overthink the recoil thing just a little bit, especially if you can have a muzzle brake. Um, and so you're really kind of taking all of those those factors into into consideration, you know, when when choosing a cartridge. Like we have, and it's crazy if you haven't grown up really around understanding cartridges and bullets and ballistics. Explaining it, oh my gosh, God. it's it, it's, <laughs> it's really hard. What's the difference between a caliber and a cartridge? Well, caliber technically is the diameter of a bullet, which is the projectile in the end of your cartridge. And there's uh, dozens of manufacturers for bullets. So yeah, just yeah, just for reference sake, yeah. we load all kinds of bullets made by other manufacturers. We Into. actually don't make bullets, right? We only, we only produce cartridges. Right, right, which is a, a case, powder, primer, and a bullet, you know, so it's made up of four things. So it's really, and, and I know I may be speaking, uh, you know, people are like, I get that, and yet some people maybe don't get that. Oh, so let's sure. say you talk about a thirty caliber bullet. It's actually technically a diameter of .308 inches, and a thirty caliber bullet is used in everything from a three oh eight Winchester to a 30 out 6 30 out 6 Springfield 300 Weatherby 3378 Weatherby a 300 PRC it's all the same bullet it's just moving it at different speeds and flat out the faster that that 30 cal bullet is going out that muzzle the further you're going to be able to shoot that 30 cal bullet and then one of the things that's really been a trend lately and where there's been a lot of advancements in technology and bullet development is in the ballistic coefficient 
We call it BC. It sounds pretty techy if you're not used to it. But basically, that's a calculation that tells you the aerodynamics of your bullet. And that really has a say on how flat that bullet shoots. Mm -hmm. So let's say out of a 30 cal, 300 Weatherby, for instance, you could... Uh, you can have a bullet that's a BC of 350, okay, 0.350. You can have one that's 600. That one at, uh, that has a 600 BC is going to end up shooting, say, at 1,000 yards, certainly feet, feet difference, not just inches, but feet because of the aerodynamics of that bullet. So we're getting longer, heavier, higher BC bullets that are shooting flatter and further. And there's been a lot of technology, uh, you know, obviously Hornady, their ELDX bullet, Berger with their VLDs. They've been a couple really leading the way. Nosler's got some now as well. Their long range Acubond. Those are going to be able to shoot further as well. But then lastly, you also want to take into consideration that bullet construction and how it's going to penetrate. If it's going to hold together, is it going to fragment? Does it hold together at different velocities? So it is, man, I tried to go simple, and I hope that yeah. made some sense. You got pretty deep on it. But, but uh, it, you just go deep. <laughs> I, I, Kevin could maybe take it not as deep, no, but it, it just goes deep the more you get into yeah. it. So. No, no, it, it's interesting. And, you know, just to... Uh, we, we're, I like to think we're honest people over here at Weatherby, but a year and a half ago, or yeah, a year and a half ago when I started here, I, I grew up hunting with rifles a lot. And exactly what you said, Mark, um, we just knew what cartridges were, were the ones that have always been around mm -hmm. that 30 30, that 30-06. <laughs> yep. We shot those rounds, and that's what my dad gave me, and that's why we shot it, and it had its purposes. And honestly, we shot it a few times a year, and we were really happy with it. Yep. And I felt like I knew a lot about ballistics and cartridges and things like that. And when I got here, I was like, all right, I better hit the books because, <laughs> and you know what? There's still times, no joke, there's still times where Adam's like, hey, that's not right. When we're talking about something and I'm like, it's gotta be right. And he's like, no, that's not right. And I'm like, oh, and so I got to go back and learn again. But now I'm like, I'm super into it. I think it's intriguing and I think it's interesting and, and I love talking about it um, just because it's, it really is when you really start to dive into it and understand it a little bit, it really changes the way you hunt and the, the reason you shoot certain cartridges, but kind of looking back on it when you're talking about more like deer like cartridges, um, Really, when you're talking about Weatherby cartridges, a 257 is going to be one of the most popular rounds for deer out, out of a Weatherby round. Um, and, you know, that's in direct comparison with a 25-06, which is very popular for whitetails. And um, not a ton of people shoot, but a 257 Roberts is another one that it directly compares with. But you want to talk about uh, straight-up killing power. A 257 has done things to animals in the last year and a half that I've seen with my own eyes, and I've been like, whoa, that was unbelievable. <laughs> you know, we've seen people shoot uh, antelope and mule deer and deer with that cartridge, and it just puts them down so fast. Wow. And I, it, it's, just, it's just a crazy cartridge. So that one, and then obviously you start talking about your 6.5 offerings, which is a, a huge thing right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, we obviously we chamber six five Creed Moors in our rifles, which is popular, but we also have the six five three hundred, um, which is going substantially faster. And then we just this year came out with the six five Weatherby RPM, which is an incredible all around cartridge for literally almost all of 
North America. If you want to shoot a whitetail, it'd be great for it. If you want to start stepping up, it would be amazing for it. What's funny, Mark, is the questions that you're asking are some of the number one things we get. Like if we post something on social media about a cartridge, it blows up every time. People have questions, people argue about it, people are fascinated by it, people are educated, some people are very uneducated. Still want to say things. They still want to post as (laughs) if they're educated. Our customer service every day gets phone calls from people asking what cartridge should I buy? And we answer that question and have for over seven decades yeah. <laughs> because in, at the end of the day, it's like, sure, a 30 out six could go kill a heck of a lot of stuff on, on, in North America, but you, you want something to be best. So there is, there are a lot of things to consider, but there's a lot of great material, a lot of great articles out there, you know, to, to kind of start to look into some things. Yeah, yeah. That, that information gap is present for a lot of people still, even though there is so much information out there and, and this is helpful going to the bare bones basics and building us up with some of these key, um, ideas is is not a waste of time. I know there's a lot of guys who are who are finding this helpful right now, and I want to I want to do this one more time with another set of gear questions that people will have because if we're going from from Mark who grew up hunting with his grandpa's 1981 semi-auto <laughs> rifle in 30 out six, and that's all I ever <laughs> used for a whole lot of years. Uh, now it's okay. Now I'm buying a new rifle. When we've talked about cartridges, what about just general choosing the right firearm for your situation? Um, I mean, you're thinking about what caliber, you're thinking about how long of a barrel, how heavy of a gun. I remember when I was choosing, you know, my next rifle, did I want something really lightweight that I could pack around on backcountry Western hunts? Or because I don't shoot as much as some guys and I'm not, I don't consider myself a pro marksman, I'd rather have a a heavier gun that's going to be a little more stable. So these are some of the things I was starting to try to think about myself. Um, But you guys are the experts. Tell me what should someone in my shoes be thinking about when trying to make that firearm purchase decision? Yeah. I I mean, I think you need to go, okay, what is, just like anything else, maybe in our purchases, was we say, what's the utilization? What percent am I going to be using it, uh, you know, on a cornfield versus hiking in the mountains? Um, And so you really need to know, yeah, what is that main thing? Like uh, some people don't like getting skinnier barrels because they think it'll heat up a lot. But if you're a backcountry hunter and you're going to be hiking around, putting on 30 miles in a number of days, which we do all the time, I'm hoping to only shoot once, twice, maybe three times. And so to me, the thickness of my barrel, because skinnier barrels are going to heat up more, will affect accuracy. A skinnier, lighter, fluted barrel like on our backcountry rifle, if I'm a lot of the hunting I'm doing, that's really important to me. But if 90% of the time I'm either truck hunting or, you know, stand hunting or whatever, then that doesn't mean anything to me. Mm And so I think it's it's kind of first going, okay, where am I going to spend you know, most of my time, if that makes sense? I mean, really, when you look at a rifle, there's not a lot of components to it. You have your action, you got your barrel, and your stock. And that kind of makes up most of it, yeah. and that's where most your And then you just your interchange those parts to make different And we got models. a lot of different changes to it, Yeah, it, just like every gun maker out there does. But I think, so if you start with your barrel... Uh, you know, talk about, we just talked about each of those three things real quick, probably, and maybe answer that question. You go, okay, well, then there's finish too. But, um, but if you talk about your barrel, you can get a skinnier fluted barrel, you can get a heavy steel barrel. And then what's popular now are the carbon, uh, fiber barrels, which 
are actual thinner steel barrels wrapped in carbon fiber. In case people don't know, it's, the bullet is not traveling down carbon fiber. It's still traveling down steel. But that's very popular. Um, the things to consider with barrels would be usually weight uh, and then usually heat. Uh, so um, a skinnier barrel is going to be lighter. And if you know you're not going to be shooting a lot of rounds, but you want to hike it around, skinny barrel is great. If you want a heavier barrel, you'll be able to go down plink at the range or maybe shoot some varmints or whatever. And if you're going to be shooting a lot, you might want a heavier barrel because it is going to hold its accuracy longer. That's where carbon fiber barrels have grown in popularity is you get a lighter weight barrel. Although our carbon fiber wrapped steel barrel is not necessarily lighter than a skinny barrel, but it has more the performance of a heavy steel barrel when it comes to heat dissipation, but without all that steel on it. So carbon fiber, although more costly, could be a good middle road for people. So you really kind of want to consider that on barrels, right, Kevin? Am I, is that- yeah, that was a great explanation. When you got into the carbon fiber, it was a little bit, it's a little bit deep. But for, We sell a lot instance, of carbon fiber yeah. barrels, guns, back east, yeah, actually. We do. And, you know, it's important to and know— And in the south, which imp- is funny. It's important to note that a carbon fiber barrel does not make it the lightest gun possible. Um, our, our, our skinny barrels for, well, I don't want to get into contours, but our, our skinny barrels, let's <laughs> I, say. I'm trying to use yeah, simple yeah, technology. Our skinny barrels are way lighter than carbon barrels because the carbon barrels are going to be generally 50 to 60% lighter than a, a steel barrel in the same thickness. Contour. Yeah. Contour. Um, so... It's important to note that um, really the main thing about the carbon fiber is heat dissipation. But it's, it's throughout the years, a lot of people think, oh, I'm, I want the lightest gun I could get. I'm going to get that carbon fiber barrel. And it, it's they're not the lightest, but they our lightest gun perform better. is our backcountry TI. It's a backcountry titanium gun. It's four pounds, 4.9 pounds. And it's a titanium action with the thinnest barrel with flutes in it we can put on with a carbon fiber stock. We just made it as light as possible. Now, that, that's not going to be a, I'm going to go down and plink all weekend gun. That's going to yeah. be, strap it to your back. I shoot stuff. Stu- and go shoot, hike. I shoot stuff. And kill stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, so that's a little bit on barrel. Stocks, um, you know, uh, traditionally, obviously, you know, there was wood stocks for years. And obviously, for the first 50 years, that's most of what we sold. Uh, we came out with the first kind of maybe commercially available fiberglass stock in the early 80s. We called it the Fiber Mark. My grandpa told my dad it'd never sell uh, because it wasn't, you know, just that beautiful wood. And then it sold. And uh, my grandpa <laughs> grandpa said, well, I guess times are changing. But, uh, <laughs> but I've, ever since then, I mean, 90% plus of what we sell is not going to be a wood stock. There's a place for it. And I like hunting with the wood stock, but I'm not going to go beat it up carrying it around the mountains. But if I'm not going to be hiking a lot, there's a good place for it. But it can get wet. It can swell. It can fluctuate with temperature. So basically, there's three main uh, types of stocks. Uh, You would have an injection molded plastic stock. They usually call it polymer. People don't like to market plastic. But that's going to be most your guns you see out there these days. They're plastic. They're molded. But... I've taken many Weatherby Vanguards out of the box in a plastic so- box and shot half-inch groups. So it doesn't mean they're not going to shoot. Yeah. Then you, you kind of step up to fiberglass. The fiberglass typically is going to be lighter than the polymer or plastic. It, it often has an aluminum bedding block where the uh, recoil lug uh, action yeah, goes in and, and the barrel. And, and uh, the fiberglass can be lighter. 
uh, maybe a little higher performance. And then a lot of what we have now is we have carbon fiber wrapped stocks, which is very similar technology of how the fiberglass is made, but it's carbon fiber. And so really you're jumping up in your materials based on kind of your, your budget really, uh, you know, with those three materials. And then obviously that carbon fiber stock is going to be the lightest out of any of, uh, any of those stocks. Um, it's also going to pre- perform very, very well and be, and be pretty darn durable. Then you have the shape of your stock, um, and that's been really changing the last three to five years. Mm. You had a lot of just traditional stocks, and now you, you had what looked like the tactical stocks that are on these hunting rifles. And so you have adjustability sometimes in your length of pole uh, and in your comb, which raises your cheek piece up and down to align for better sight acquisition with your scope. And so there's a lot of folks that enjoy that type of, of shooting and hunting now, uh, where you could get a carbon fiber stock and there's a lot more material and the gun looks heavy, but it uh, it still is lighter, say, if you get it in a carbon fiber stock. And so your stock shape is really another thing. And a lot of that's just personal preference. It's good to go buy a local gun shop, see how that works, see how, you know, you, you, you kind of when you, you pull up the gun, how your cheek aligns to it and how it feels, how that pistol grip feels uh, as you wrap your, your finger, you know, kind of around it. Um, and so there's really been a lot of change the last few years in regards to a lot of stock shapes where guys are going out with what looks like more range or tactical guns. and They're going into the field with it. At first, I thought it was a little silly. Um, but as folks are wanting to shoot out further and they're used to that, they want that stock they feel a bit more comfortable with. That makes sense. Um, so that's kind of your your stock, and then and then really it's you know your action is kind of your last your last part. Obviously, we have the Weatherby Mark V action and Weatherby Vanguard action, and there's differences in your different actions of say your bolt lift. Like our Mark V lifts 54 degrees, as maybe to a traditional 90 degrees, which means you can maybe cycle rounds a little bit quicker. You have maybe different types of feeding to look into when you're, you know, you're pulling the cartridges out and pushing it in. And so a lot of that's kind of feel you have different weight and preference, but I'll tell you what, what's selling a lot of guns these days is just new, cool looking stuff. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> There's <laughs> it's carbon fiber, it's colors. And then really it's the whole coating, the Cerakote, which where traditional rifles were blued. Now we have a Cerakote process, which gives it function and fashion, gives it color. You have a flat, dark earth color, a tan type of color, and it's really durable. So that's popular. You have camo dip stocks. That's real popular. So a lot of guys are getting new guns because stuff is just looking cool uh, right now. And honestly, that's what sells a lot of guns because you can go pick up your grandpa's 30-odd-6 and probably go shoot a a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But anyways, I don't know if that helped any. Oh, it's incredibly helpful. I think there's, there's, uh, I've said over and over again, but there's so many people that I think lack the fundamental, uh, the foundations of this stuff, understanding these different pieces and why they matter and how the differences matter. So this is, this is important. I think, uh, would you add anything, Kevin, to, to what Adam was saying? I mean, there's a lot, um, there's a lot. Uh, he, he broke it down into four sections, but even within those four sections, that's where brands start differentiating themselves. So, you know, I don't know. You can really look into triggers. You could look into yeah. one-piece bolts versus multiple-piece bolts. Um, you could look into the lugs on the actions. You could look into the fluting on the, on the barrels. You could mm-hmm. look into the shapes of the stock and what they're made of and the recoil. There's like a lot of stuff. And that's where you just start seeing that, 
that price difference and that those brand identities in each one of those rifles. And so when you start looking for a rifle, definitely uh, most brands are um, very different for a reason. Um, someone mm-hmm. thinks that their action is better than someone else's or something like that. And then, you know, there's there's a lot of companies that are all built on Remington 700s. So, um, you right. know, that's a very popular And there's popular obviously action. accuracy, you know, one of the things, you know, accuracy is obviously very important. A lot of companies have different guarantees. All our rifles guarantee sub-MOA, which means at 100 yards, you're going to shoot an inch or less and on out. Some will claim half The inch. rifle will shoot. Correct. Not necess- <laughs> Let's not say you. <laughs> yes. Dang it. I was hoping that was going to help yeah, me yeah, out. Yeah. Well, no. no, it's a guarantee, and we guarantee it, but it's a, it's a funny guarantee. But uh, – and so, you know, the accuracy is big, and the further out you shoot, the more important that accuracy is going to be even in a, a hunting scenario. Now, accuracy can be a bit subjective because you have the shooter, you have environmental elements, you have the load, the bullet, yep. I mean, the barrel, the way it's bedded in the stock. There's a lot of things in with accuracy. We'd like to say we, we, we manufacture very accurate rifles, but most of my competitors would tell you that as well, and, and, and frankly, a lot of them do. Um, you know, where we differentiate is in the speed game because that is more of a, a, a strict math thing. And so um, we have, in most cases, the fastest moving bullet per that bullet diameter uh, in a Weatherby cartridge than anybody else. And that's a differentiator for us. We call it ballistic superiority. Sounds kind of cool. Uh, but in other words, ours is going to shoot shoot flatter. We try to be the most accurate, but a lot of people claim that. And that can be really even rifle to rifle. That's the crazy thing about accuracy. You can take out and have five barrels made by the same manufacturer put in the same gun, and one of them will like one bullet better than the next, and they're made to the same specifications. Accuracy, it can be, man, you chase an accuracy, man. There, there's some science to it, and then there's some voodoo and some <laughs> black magic. Yeah. It's crazy <laughs> yeah, it's true. due to accuracy. Uh, but, but that's where that understanding and knowing your speed and velocity and energy and drop, that's just a good research and math you know, type of thing. And that's where we like to think we differentiate. That's how my grandpa started the company. It was actually not with guns. It was with fast-moving bullets. That's what he wanted to do. His whole philosophy was, let's get bullets moving faster. And that's the only reason Kevin and I got a job today is because <laughs> grandpa had an idea of moving things faster. I, I, I so often can point to my grandpa as the reason I've got this job too. So it's funny how that works out sometimes. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Uh, that's cool. It is cool. So you, you talked about chasing accuracy around, and and one of the things you guys stand by is not just your accuracy, but the speed. Um, but what about let's 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 go back to our example person. Our example person. We've talked a little bit about how we should be thinking a little differently if we're going out rifle hunting. Now we've talked a little bit about bare bones basic knowledge you need to pick the right cartridge, to pick the right firearm. Now we're set up. We've got our new gun. We are becoming a more serious rifle hunter now. I'm not just taking grandpa's gun. I've got a new one. I'm going out there. I'm going to really take this seriously, be the best rifle hunter I possibly can be. Now we got to talk about actually pulling the trigger and doing it well and and handling that moment of truth. Of course, there's been a million things written about how to become a, a better marksman. People have talked about on podcasts. People have, I mean, it's it's all the time, right? But if you guys had to break down and share a couple of your best pieces of advice or key things to always keep in mind for someone who's trying to go from the, I take my gun out the day before a rifle season, I make sure it's on zero, and then I go out from that guy to then become a guy who can become a really, really good marksman. What would your advice be for making that shift and that transition? You want me to start? Sure. I've been starting every time. Um, 
you know, I think that the the most important thing on that would just be um, practice and repetition, just like you would do with anything else, whether it be a sporting activity or or, or anything else you're you're doing. You just need to practice with that rifle, and that's going to be the most important thing. Um, trigger pull is a major thing. A lot of people need to make sure that, you know, it goes hand in hand with a few things. We talked about recoil and we talked about our brakes. A lot of the, I would venture to say, uh, I don't know, this isn't a fact, that a lot of inaccuracies come from people maybe being scared of the recoil. Developing a flinch. Developing a flinch, developing target panic, something like that. Um, brakes help tremendously with that right now. Um, and in my opinion, I, I, and I, I know that maybe not everybody does this, but it's super easy to carry around earplugs these days. And, and I carry around earplugs when I hunt. Um, and right before I shoot, I put them in. So the brake, even without it, I've shot a couple br- guns without brakes. I mean, with brakes, without ear protection. And, and I've still been, still been fine. It's really not been that much different. Now, when you're sitting at a range on a bench and you're under an awning and you're shooting it, it's way louder. <laughs> and that's, I think people are like, man, that breaks so loud. Right. But a lot of the time, the only time they ever hear it's at a range when their neighbor is just blowing their eardrums out. So in the open field or in the timber, man, the, the brakes aren't as bad as they really, really limit recoil. But obviously, I, I think pulling the trigger is probably the most important part of being um, a good marksman. Yeah. Um, breath, breath control, um, knowing your your inhales and your exhales on your trigger pull and how you kind of approach that situation. Um I, I think all that, that's pretty important. Um, and I really would echo that and also just go back to that positioning and practicing in field positions. Yeah. And to be honest, you can do that um, in, in, a, in, a safe, in a safe way. You can do that without shooting. I remember doing that with my wife and kids early on when they were getting into hunting is we'd go in the backyard and we live in a rural area, but we wouldn't get ammunition. And you just go out there, grab a pack, maybe grab sticks, a bipod, what you might have. Maybe there's some bushes in your backyard. And go, see that rock up on the hill, 2 o'clock? That's an elk, and it's, you got 10 seconds to get your sight on it before it goes over that hill. What would you do right now? And it's at 350 yards. I'm not going to shoot it you know, offhand. What are you going to do? And it's getting down in that position. Mm, and I've seen scope. a lot of people just either rush it and miss animals or never get a shot off because you don't understand like when you're in the field like that and in the moment, like you got to be able to think constantly, okay, what am I doing? What position am I getting in? Am I grabbing sticks? Am I grabbing a bipod? Am I throwing it on a pack? Am I resting it on a limb? And really understanding your points of contact with the ground. So the more points of contact you have, like even if you're sitting on your butt using sticks or a limb, it's okay. I want an elbow on a knee and it's figuring those things out. And so it's not just, I think a lot of people can shoot a lot of really good stuff at a bench, but I'm really convinced that a lot of people don't practice enough in field positions on hills, you know, I don't know. It's all those different things. And so I'd I'd really encourage people to, to practice in those type of positions that may be a buddy with the ranch or some land you can go out to depending on the rules at your range and where you're at. If you can go prone there, use sticks and then know your distances per shooting position uh obviously standing sometimes you're gonna have to shoot an animal you bust them out of the sticks and in the woods so elk hunting with my son a few weeks ago and we busted a bunch of bulls at 50 to 60 yards uh in the trees didn't have time to set up therefore we didn't shoot an elk but <laughs> but <laughs> in that moment offhand would have been best uh 
but then obviously if he'd have seen one at 400 yards, he's, he was going to want to get prone in, in establishing kind of how to, how to do that. And even the shooting accessories you need, like I have a system I use. Um, it's a Spartan, uh, both a carbon fiber bipod and shooting sticks. And my shooting sticks will go to full standing. I can go sitting and I can go prone. And I know in any of those positions, that enables me to go out further. If I'm just hoping there's a tree branch, that doesn't happen. If I just sit mm-hmm. down on my butt and don't have sticks, I'm not going to shoot out as far. So it's really understanding that positioning and, and really purchasing gear that will enable you to, to be able to shoot out further as well. Yeah, that's such good advice. I feel, and I've alluded to this several times, but there is this, uh, this mistake that I think that happens commonly, and I'm saying this because I have done it in the past, which is assuming that when you pick up the rifle, it's, it's easy time. It's time to just grab the gun go out and then you can shoot your deer but so many mistakes i think happen when you go into it that assumption and you don't practice in the different positions you don't give the time and care to making the right decisions around the right cartridge or the right optic or practicing uh, just as much as you do with your bow i think a lot of people understand that details matter when it comes to getting proficient with a bow and then they ignore that very same thing with their next weapon the next phase of their season and i think I think people pay for that. So this is this is such important foundational knowledge that I appreciate you guys taking the time to to step back and talk about the basic things. I know this is probably maybe boring for you to have to go through these basic ideas again and again and again for so many people over decades and decades, but I'm telling you what, people need it and uh and I appreciate it so much. If if two things. Number 1, I think we have to get some time on the calendar someday to do the part two, the advanced level course, which I think hopefully if people will listen to this and okay, decide, all right, I've got my basics covered. I'm going to go and take this to the next level. And then next year they're going to say, okay, now how do I really ramp things up? We're going to have to have a round two scheduled. But if yeah. in the- Well, then I got an idea for a mark or for a round three, Mark, Ooh. and that would be that would be let's go hunting, then come yeah. back and do a podcast and talk about how it actually worked in the That's field. That's what needs to happen. <laughs> I love that idea. I love that idea. Count me in. Count me in for it. Yeah, um, we can make it happen. Especially if we're chasing some of those under the radar huge Wyoming whitetails that I keep hearing about. Yeah. <laughs> no, they don't exist. They're yeah. not here. We don't have any whitetails. <laughs> nope. There's no whitetails in Wyoming. No one come here. <laughs> okay, we'll keep that secret. Um, but in the meantime, between now and then, for people that want to learn more about Weatherby or even learn more about some of the concepts we talked about. It sounds like your customer service team can offer a lot on that side as well. How do they get in touch with you? How do they, how do they get some of this information? Sure. Yeah. Uh, weatherby.com is going to be obviously the first place to go to, but you know, if you're interested, you know, and I'm going to put a plug in there, but if you're interested in this kind of talk and, um, what we do here at Weatherby and the ballistics and the rifles, uh, we have, uh, on our mark, the Weatherby podcast where me and Adam and, uh, Luke and a couple other guys from here talk about this stuff often. Um, so that could be a good resource for somebody who, who's, actively listening to podcasts, check that out on our mark. And then also we actually do a good job at, at trying to relay some information on our Instagram channel. Um, so, so that's just, uh, um, Kevin has this thing called cartridge wars and he puts it up and he'll, he'll, he'll don't tell everybody it's me. Now I'm going to get hate mail. <laughs> oh, uh, a team here at the Weatherby here under at Weatherby. the direct leadership of Kevin <laughs> and, and they Busted. will put like a Weatherby cartridge versus something else and people like lose their minds, there'll be hundreds man. of comments of people losing their minds and we'd love it because that's it gets awesome. people thinking about this yeah. stuff and it's, it's uh, it's kind of fun. We just did too here this fall launch a whole new Mark Five line and have a lot. Really, I think a pretty 
a pretty broad range of variety of different, you know, rifles. And we go start at 500 bucks in a Vanguard all the way up to, you know, several thousand, obviously. So we kind of in the middle, middle everywhere. You can check it out. And we, we, uh, you know, just we're in plug period here. So we also dropped the price of our ammunition. Uh, It's one thing that people talk about and and generally is a barrier to entry to the Weatherby family uh, being a part of this family is, is all that ammunition is too expensive. Well, we we dropped our ammunition. We're, we're definitely way more competitive now with some things we're doing here at the company. And, and that's important to note that if you're looking for that high performance ballistic superiority, it's well within reason now to get into that into that family of products. So um, any of the, any of the things, just look us up on, or give us a call. Yeah. Phone numbers on the website. Uh, I don't know. It's a new Wyoming number. I don't even know the number. So (laughs) (laughs) it's uh, (laughs) 307-675-7800. That's it. There we go. It just came to me. (laughs) Well, it looks like you guys have an amazing new facility too there in Sheridan. And that's, that's open to visitors too, right? Um, We have a visitor center um, up front. That's got a bunch of, cool stuff uh, we've got a bunch of old historical memorabilia from the roy days the the days where adam uh ed was here um and then we've also got a bunch of great mounts that people <laughs> have shot through the years uh we we do have um some rifles available for people that are coming through we, yeah. we sell some rifles we got right our lineup of rifles and shotguns so people can you can kind of shoulder them and see what the lineup's like and then you know, some accessories and ammo, things like that for sale. And, you know, it's a cool place we get. It's cool just during hunting season here. Because, see, we out in California, we just didn't really have that. So we kind of opened up this little visitor center. And folks will stop in. It's funny here because these last couple months, basically about 10 to 2, you get guys with orange hats and camo uh, walking in mm-hmm. uh, because they've gone out in the morning. And they said, hey, let's go kill time. We heard Weatherby moved to Sheridan, Wyoming, and they come in and check stuff out. So you just see pickup after pickup coming in with a bunch of guys in camo and orange, and it's kind of kind of fun. So if you're out this way, we're right by the Montana border there, Sheridan, Wyoming. Come by and uh, check us out. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Adam, Kevin, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this. I, I enjoyed it, and I – whether you know it or not, I'm definitely going to take you up on your offer. <laughs> oh, no, we're Let's doing do it. it. Let's do it. I already it. got a plan. We just won't talk about it live on this podcast. All right. <laughs> I like it. Well, thank you, guys, and uh, best of luck the rest of your hunting season, too. And that is a wrap. Hope you guys enjoyed this. Hopefully you learned a thing or two. Hopefully you're be heading out there into the field, whether it's with a bow or a gun, whatever it is. Best of luck. Have some fun. Shoot straight. And until next time... Stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.